before we pray, uh, recently uh, in my own uh, private reading, private study, have been going back over Bonhoeffer's life and, and, and reading uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his theology and uh, his biography. And in a sermon that Bonhoeffer was preaching or preached while he was serving as a minister to a German-speaking church in London, he said, and I quote, No one has yet believed in God and the kingdom of God. No one has yet heard about the realm of the resurrected and not been homesick from that hour, waiting and looking forward joyfully to being released from bodily existence. Whether we are young or old makes no difference. What are 20 or 30 or 50 years in the sight of God? And which of us knows how near he or she may already be to the goal? That life only really begins when it ends here on earth. That all that is here is only prologue before the curtain goes up. That is for young and old alike to think about. Why are we so afraid when we think about death? Death is only dreadful for those who live in dread and fear of it. Death is not wild and terrible if only we can be still and hold fast to God's word. Death is not bitter if we have not become bitter ourselves. Death is grace. The greatest, gift of gra the, the greatest gift of grace that God gives to people who believe in Him. Death is mild, death is sweet and gentle. It beckons to us with heavenly power if only we realize that it is the gateway to our homeland, the tabernacle of joy, the everlasting kingdom of peace. How do we know that dying is so dreadful? Who knows whether in our human fear and anguish we are only shivering and shuddering at the most glorious, heavenly blessed event in the world? Death is hell and night and cold if it is not transformed by our faith. But that is just what is so marvelous, that we can transform death. Ten or twelve years later, this was a sermon he preached while he was in London, uh, uh, probably around between 1933 and 1935. About ten or twelve years later, from preaching this in London, Bonhoeffer is back in Germany. It's World War II. And he's hanged in April of 1945 at the Nazi Flossenburg camp for the part that he had played in some of the, uh, the attempt of assassination on Hitler. Uh, at the time, at Flossenburg, there was a camp doctor by the name of H. Fischer Holstrom who gave this account of Bonhoeffer's last moments. On the morning of that day, between 5 and 6 o'clock, the prisoners, among them Admiral Canaris, General Oster, General Thomas, Reich, Gerrisgrat, Sock, were taken from their cells and the verdicts of the court-martial read out to them. Through the half-open door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer, before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man so die so entirely submissive to the will of God. End of quote. Uh, in, in, in reading uh, this, among other things that Bonhoeffer wrote, uh, you know, the question, uh, because there is, there, is, there is no doubt 
that uh, because of all of the many sources that talk about how uh, knowing he was he was going to his death, how he left his cell, he actually you know kind of ran down the stairs to the place where they were going to drive him to the gallows. I mean, the, 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 the number of witnesses and testimony about the poise that he had is beyond, you know, dispute. The question is, how do you get to the place where your theology merges with your life of faith so completely that you have this kind of poise when facing death? And I think the key would be because of other things that Bonhoeffer has written, and I would agree with this, is that the key is the way that you face your de- death is, is, is somehow, uh, it comes about because of the way that you choose to live your life right now. And it has to do with the kind of vision of life that you have that is, sa- is, is sort of this God-saturated, God-entranced view of life. And for us to be able to deal with life, not, not, not just as, as people who have certain you know, Christian sentiments or a certain kind of a philosophy that has been formed by the Gospels, but, but to have the kind of life that is shaped by the, this truth that God has given us. I, I think that we find a lot of it in our passage tonight, in the passage that Gabriel just read. And uh, before we look at it, let's, let's pray and ask God to bless us. Father, we, we stand before the writings of your servant John in, in awe of the, the, the truths that, that he has exposed for us from heaven. And, and what we are, uh, we, we marvel. We, we are, are, are just so awestruck by the power of these words, that it, it, it makes the brightness of the sun seem senile to us. How bright these truths are, Father. How glorious these truths are for us. And it's our prayer tonight that as we begin to taste them and to do business with them and to study them and to press our mind into them, Father, that they will become a part not just of our vocabulary, but the vision that we have for life and, and shape the way that we face everything in this life, even life's final moments, in such a way that we are buoyant and that we are above water and that we are safe in the knowledge of the promises that we have from You. Father, we know that You hear our prayers. And, and we pray, we pray that you will bless us with eyes that see and ears that hear tonight. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And all the church said. As we've been saying over the last couple of weeks, one of the most important facts for every Christian to know is that they have access to the presence of God right now. And one of the ways that we have talked about how the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 3 of 1 John should be translated, or a good translation of it, that gives kind of the strength of it, is that John says, Behold! He says, Behold! Behold, how miraculous, how out of this world is the love of God that we should be the children of God. And that is what we are. I mean, what does that behold mean? I mean... What is it that John is trying to grab our attention with? 
Well, you know, is John trying to say that if you work really, really hard and you dot all of the I's and you cross all of the T's, that over space of time that this will slowly emerge, that it will slowly come into our consciousness, that, you know, this is a truth that will somehow, you know, come, come into our, you know, through that hard work and through a lot of luck, that this, that this truth will come into our consciousness? Not at all. What it means is that it is possible for the reality of God to become more than just intellectual for us. That it becomes more than just being able to say true to the question, is God with us? It's true. But it's more than that. It's understanding the, the weight or, or feeling, the weight being sensitive, spiritually sensitive to the presence of God that we realize that there is no place that we go that God is not with us, not just His eyes. And not just His power, but His heart and His being, it, it, it's with us. And because that's true, it bursts the boundaries and, and flows into the rest of our being. That God's presence comes bursting out of the ceiling and comes down upon our soul on a daily basis. But then John doesn't just talk about the present. He moves to the future and he writes something so astonishing in verse 2. He says, Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And all who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. What this means is there is something far greater in the future than what we have even right now, if we can believe that. Now let's have a look at this entire text. Three great realities. The first one is we have a reality in the present. Now, verse 2, we are children of God. That is the present reality. It is now. It is present tense. It is one of the great truths of our faith. Now, the sad thing is that from time to time you ask a person, you know, hey, are you a Christian? Or are you a believer? And they might say something like, well, you know, I'm trying to be. Or they might say, you know, are you a Christian? Well, I, I hope so. Now, to say that betrays a great misunderstanding of what Christianity is all about. The present reality is that you are, in the present, on this day, a child of God. In other words, Christianity is a, a, a standing. Jessica and Jordan are my children, or they are not my children. There's no such thing as a kid that's 50% a kid. When you adopt a kid, when you adopt a child, there's a point when that kid crosses a line from not being your kid to being a kid, your kid, for all time. And either that child is yours or not. There is no in-between. Now, based on it, let me, I want to say something. Every time I think about it, it blows my mind. Your behavior, my behavior, is not the primary thing. Your behavior, my behavior, is not the primary thing. You know, there are going to be some weeks where your behavior is not going to be all that great. And you're not going to feel very good about, you know, your discipleship and the way that you're, you're, you're living your life of faith. And there are going to be some times where you're just going to find your mind wandering into areas that it should not be in. And there are some thoughts that you're going to have. They might be angry thoughts. They may be lustful thoughts. They may be covetous thoughts. They may be all kinds of different thoughts that are contrary to the will of God. And it just seems like your thinking life is just inundated with those kinds of thoughts. Or it might be that you find yourself being tempted a lot and not being able to stand up to it. 
And you find yourself faltering. You find yourself you know, kind of failing when it comes to these temptations. Your behavior is not going to be very good. And the logic is going to be, well, you know, I didn't perform very well this week. Living kind of a life that I'm not very proud of. And, you know, I don't feel very much like a child of God. I've said this before. You know, the opposite is really true. When my own kids would misbehave, and my own kids were doing things that were displeasing to me and that were displeasing to the world at large, you know. I was more of a father to them then. I had more of my eyes on them then. I felt more of the responsibility of my fatherhood. I felt more of the, the covenant that I had with my own children when they were in trouble or they were displeasing. Now, when they were doing great, you know, I felt more or less like I was just along for the ride. But when they were displeasing to me, I know I, I knew, and I know to this day, that I needed to be more of a father, more of a presence in their life. It was my obligation because of their position, because of their standing, because of their status. They are my kids. That's the relationship. Now, they may have thought, you know, I don't feel like I've been uh, very good this week. I've broken a couple of curfews. Been a little disrespectful to mom. I don't feel very much like Mark and Ellen's kid because I've mess, messed up pretty well all this week. Now from, from their point of view, they may have felt like that. But from my point of view, my fatherhood was on top of them. And in Christianity, you don't lose the father's heart just because you have a bad week. In Christianity, you don't lose your status when you mess up. And the reason is, Christianity is a standing. Christianity is a standing. It's a standing that is received. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, he, see, he says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The fact that you are a children, uh, uh, we are children of God, is, is something that is lavished on us. It's a gift. It's something that's bestowed on us. It's made a present to us. It's something that we receive. Now I know, you know, there are folks in the Western culture, in, in, in our own culture, in our own society, in this nation, who kind of bridle at this thought. Aren't you know? They say, aren't we all people? You know, of all places, aren't we all God's children? Well, in one sense, God created all people, and so He loves them as something that He created. You know, in the same way, you know, Henry Ford is sort of the, the father of the Model T. And I'm sure that Henry Ford had a sense of ownership and a, and a sense of possessing the Model T as something very, very special to his heart because he created it. And in the same way, I think that God loves all of the things that He has created. But if that is the pinnacle of the thought then the idea of being God's children has been brought low and it is to miss the greatness of what it means to be a child of God the way that John is talking about. I mean, think about it this way. Think of all of the genocidal dictators of, of all times, of, of all histories in, in this world. Is God their father? Yes, in the sense that they are sons by creation. Does God love them? 
Again, yes, in the sense that He wants to see them healed and He wants them to stop doing their destruction in the world. But does God have a real, a bona fide, true father-child, the way that I've been describing what John is talking about here, does He have a real father-child relationship with them? The answer is no. Being a child of God is something that is lavished on a person. It has to be received. I mean, John is picking up where he left off in John chapter 1. He says in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, Yet to all who did receive Him, who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right. He gave the right to become children of God. There it is. It is received through faith. Now, it's a nice thought, perhaps, to think that you were created by God and have, therefore, always been a child of God, but it's not biblically correct in this sense. Not, not in this sense. To believe that is to really devalue what John is talking about here. When this text, text was written, in, in the ancient world, when a, a person was adopted, they were given rights. And when they were adopted, that person's debt all went to the Father. And when that person was adopted, they were given tremendous access to the person that had adopted them, who had become their father and was naming them as their child. I mean, you know, think about it this way. You know, you're the President of the United States. And no one has unrestricted access to you. I mean, if somebody wants to get to you, they have to go through, you know, the Secret Service and they have to go through advisors and counselors and, and, and employees and staff members and finally they have to go through a, a, a big secretary. I mean, no one has unrestricted access to you unless they're your daughter or your son. You remember the picture of Caroline Kennedy under her dad's desk in the Oval Office back in the early 60s when, when he was president. Do you remember the picture of... That's Caroline. That's the daughter. Do you remember the picture of John under the desk? And that's little John under the desk playing in the Oval Office. The only thing that gets a dad out of bed at 3 a.m. is his little girl or little boy calling for them because of a nightmare, because of a glass of water, or because of something. And it doesn't matter, you know, when my kids were really small, and they, they called, you know, my, my wife would tell you, there's not many things that wake me up. The only th there are only two things that wake me up. One is my own snoring. And the second thing would be my kids calling for me. And, you know, they would call and I would get up and it didn't really matter what kind of week, good or bad, that they were having as my child. Access like that comes to the little child and that is what you have in Christianity. One more quick point, uh, quick thing on this point. We have this access to God, but we also we, we have something also very special that we find in John 17. In verse 26, Jesus says, I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me, that the love, the way that you love me, God, the way that you love me, Father, may be in them. What this means is that the love God has for Jesus is the love that God has for you as a child of God. Do you think that God fails at this? Being God? I mean, I, I can hardly imagine the greatness of this. And what this means is that God will not love you more in a billion years 
than how much He loves you right now. And God loves you as much now as He will when you are perfect. Which brings up the second point, and, and a much shorter one, that we have a reality in the future. Not just one in the present, but we, you know, that we're children, but we also have a reality in the future. Believe it or not, the very next part of this verse ramps up the greatness of Christianity, I think, even more. Look at verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God. Now, present. We now are children of God. Drop down to the second sentence. But we know, as children, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Wow. This is so much more profound and deep and moving than God loves me because He made me. We, we are destined. I, this is the climax of our life. That is to see Jesus as He is. We see Him now through faith. In the future, we're going to see Him face to face. And we will become like Him because we see Him face to face. I, I think of all of the beauty of our youth and the strength of our middle age and the wisdom of our senior years all coming together. Which leads to a third and final point, and it is we also have another reality in the present. He goes present to the future, back to the present. Verse 3, all who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. What kind of experience is this that to even want it is to have a, a life-changing experience on this day and the next? What kind of experience is this that to even want to see Him is catalyst to life Radical life changes in all of us. I mean, to even want to see Jesus face-to-face -face in the future is transforming. And the more that you think about it, the more that you anticipate seeing Him, the more you become like Him until that day in the future when you do see Him and you become like Him. Now, the Bible talks about this in a couple of different places. John 17 is one. 1 Corinthians 13 about seeing Him face-to-face -face in the future. Let's go to the Old Testament, shall we? To, to David. Psalm 17, verse 15, As for me, I will be vindicated, and I will see your face. When I awake, I will be what? With seeing your likeness. You know, we have all of these appetites. You have them, I have them. We have sexual appetites and intellectual and aesthetic and creative, relational, vocational. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And what is interesting about all of this is that none of these, at least for me, none of these are satisfied by the same earthly remedy. I mean, what might take care of my relational need is not going to take care of my vocational need. And what takes care of my vocational need is not going to take care of my aesthetic need. And what I have as an aesthetic need is not going to be remedied by the medicine I take for the creative needs that I have. And it only, it, when you do find something that kind of fits, it only does it partially because all of these remedies are not God. And that means that they wear out in the end, and so you have to keep finding new ones. And what you need in thinking and working and friendship and marriage and in art and all of the rest is only found in this. 
I will behold your face in righteousness and be satisfied. That's why Christians get married, but you know they don't crash and burn because the marriage is not what it's cracked up to be, or at least the way it's cracked up to be in modern culture. And that's the reason, you know, the, the, the same thing is true with our careers. I mean, Christians go into careers and they don't crash and burn because the career is not, you know, all it's cracked up to be. And we don't, you know, we know about aging. And we don't crash and burn because we're no longer able to run as fast or jump as high or lift as much weight or, or, or you know, we have as smooth as skin, as supple as skin. We won't always have the physical strength of our youth and we don't crash and burn. But here's the thing. You see the world longing, you see the world yearning to satisfy that hole that we have in our hearts. And what you see is them taking the biggest things that they can imagine and, and the most expensive things that they can afford and the most beautiful things that they can imagine and trying to cram it into that hole and it's never quite satisfying enough. And what that tells us is that you know we as human beings, what it is that we're after is incredibly huge because we're taking the biggest things that we can find and trying to cram it into the hole of the heart and it's not working. But it is huge. That's the thing. It is huge because the thing that we're desiring, the thing that we're yearning and longing after is God Himself. To see His face in righteousness and to be satisfied. To behold as children the face of God. To know today that one day our life is going to climax because we're going to see Him face to face. And the more that we think about that and meditate and contemplate and the truth begins to make it into our heart and our soul and our mind and we begin to be transformed and become radically different in becoming conformed to the image of Jesus, I mean, just the thought of that begins to create in us the desire to be pure as He is pure and to live as disciples who are also children children of God. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And it's time for us to praise God for the greatness of the truths that He has lavished on us through the, Paul, through the, the, the pen of, of the Apostle John. And, and to bless Him as He has blessed us. You know, we all, the human heart, the human spirit, the human minds, our tonsils and uh, you know, Jill Green can give us all of the medical terms for the things that create sound. But, you know, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. I, you know, I sing like a prisoner. I'm always behind a few bars and I never have the right key. That's so corny. I mean, I've told you, I, I appreciate the kindness in you laughing at a joke I've told you about a hundred times. <laughs> but you know what? Because of these truths and because I'm a child of God, what I am, I am the perfect instrument of worship. And so are you. And having thought about these great, great truths, it's time for us to praise God. We're also going to have some shepherds down here at the front to, to meet anybody that needs to respond tonight in faith to the gospel or in, in need of prayer to be encouraged. And if that fits you tonight, we're down here ready to meet you. Let's stand and sing together.